All right, so we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 11 this morning. You can go ahead and be turning there. Uh, I really appreciated that song, that last song, because I love the way that first verse says, promise maker, promise keeper. Like You finish what you begin. Uh, because we're going to talk a lot about God following through on the promises that he makes this morning. We're going to talk about God finishing the things that he starts. Uh, specifically at the beginning, we're going to start with it with regard to the way that he punishes sin, the way that he... He judges the wicked the way he pours out his wrath on those deserving of his wrath. And, and it's going to be a little bit heavy at the beginning. I, I keep joking that Caleb keeps getting all of the really hopeful sections. He's had a couple of hard ones, too. He had persecution, but that's, that's so cheery, right? That's, that's nothing. But I, I feel like every time I start a rotation, it's like, all right, let's, let's make it real sad and depressing and, and, and awful. But we'll see. We'll see. There's hope in the end, and that's what's awesome about the idea of God's wrath. So if you're in Matthew chapter 11, I'm going to start with verse 20, uh, and we'll go from here. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For the mighty works done in you had, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That's really exciting stuff to hear, I'm sure. Um, so each of these cities that Jesus is speaking about um, had been kind of the primary locations where his ministry had been taking place up to this point. Uh, this first section of Jesus' ministry is very outward focused toward all of these crowds. And we've talked a lot about the different signs and miracles and healings and things that he had been, these, these crazy acts that he had been performing in front of all these crowds. And all of these people are coming and following him and saying... We want to see more of that. We want some of that. We want you to make this well. And he's, and he's being faithful to do that in the lives of all of these people who are around him. He's, he's healing people, and he's doing all of these miraculous things. And as he's coming, he's, he's preaching this message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one who brings you salvation. You know, put your hope and your trust in me. And none of these cities that he's performing all of these miraculous things in are actually getting to the repentance part. They're, they're like, thanks for the healing. You know, thanks for the miracle. This is great. We really appreciate it. We're going to keep living in under this law that we've been living in so long. We're going to continue to try to get by based on the works that we're doing. We're going to try to continue to please God through the way that we obey the laws that he set out before us and and we're going to keep trying to you know, move forward based on our own effort. We're not really cool with the idea of letting go of control and saying, oh, he's going to save us. We're just going to put all of our trust in him. Because he's already said, I'm not here to relieve you from all of this political struggle that you're having. I'm not here to overthrow Rome. I'm here to teach you humility, repentance. And this isn't the message that they were wanting their Messiah to bring them. We've talked about that for the last couple of weeks. They were looking for a different God. They were hoping in a different version 
than the actual Jesus that they were being presented with. And they were, they were rejecting that version of Jesus, the true version of Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying is, I've been coming through all of these cities, and I've been performing all of these miracles, and you have not repented. You haven't, you haven't truly understood what it is I'm after. I'm after your hearts. I'm not just here to make you more comfortable right now. I'm not just here to take away your sickness, take away your illnesses, take away the things that you've been struggling with right now. That's not the purpose of my time being here. And so he lists all of these cities that he has been visiting. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. He mentioned Capernaum. Capernaum was essentially his hometown, his base, where he was coming from. So these are all places that had seen lots of the things that Jesus was capable of. He continues to perform all of these things, revealing himself to be powerful, revealing himself to be who he says he is, and yet they do not repent. And so Jesus, instead of saying, you've seen all of these things, eventually it'll click. He says, if I'd done these same things, and he lists off a couple of other cities. He says Tyre and Sidon, and he says Sodom later on. These are cities that, these, that the people that he's speaking to would be very familiar with. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities kind of northwest of where they were. Uh, they were really well known for, for the pagan worship that they partook in. They were, they, were, they were known for being evil, evil people who did awful, awful things. And what Jesus is saying is, you think you understand, you think you're going to be able to get by based on your your goodness, your actions, the things that you're doing. But, but these people who are doing awful, awful things, if they saw the things that I was performing, if they saw these acts that I was making, they would be repenting. They would see through, they would see beyond, and they would say, oh, this is the guy that we're obviously supposed to follow. Obviously, everything that we're doing in our lives right now is not worthwhile. They would be very familiar with these cities. I mean, I, I just want to paint a picture here real quick. This is from Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel speaks specifically to the king of Tyre. He says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and, perf and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So at the very beginning there, God's saying, look at this city. This is a city that I had built up. This is a city that, that I had put in a perfect-looking place on earth. They had everything they need. They were wealthy. Everything was going well for them. And then they fell away. Verse 16, In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire." Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. 
So I brought fire out from your midst, and it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. So this is what people that Jesus is speaking to or thinking about when he says Tyre and Sidon, these cities that God has already said, I'm going to judge because of their wickedness. And now Jesus is coming along and saying, if I did the exact same things among them, they'd be way better off than you guys are going to be. Because they would hear these things and they would repent. He mentions the names of the city of Sodom. Uh, I don't really want to get into all, all of the specifics of the sin that took place in Sodom, but just know that if you go back and read in Genesis, like we did on Sunday nights a couple of months back, Sodom was rightly known as a city of sin. Um, they did a lot of really horrible and offensive things, and as a result, God completely wiped them off the face of the earth. Like, God himself literally destroyed them. And he's saying, you cities that I have been in, you cities that I have been preaching this message of repentance in, you cities that I have been performing all of these miracles in, are worse off than those cities because you are rejecting everything that I have been actually trying to get you to understand. You're just taking the blessing, you're taking the, the healing, you're taking the good things, you're taking the temporary fixes, and you're pushing aside the long-term solution that Jesus is offering. Salvation through repentance. So here's what I want to do today. I want to get across uh, four ideas. Uh, first, I want, to, I want to talk about how the root of our sin and the cause of our resistance to God is pride. That's part one. Part two, I want to talk about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is real, and the consequences of sin are eternal. Three, I want to talk about our response as believers to the wrath of God should be worship. And fourth, for unbelievers, this doesn't have to remain bad news. That's probably the most important point that I can make. So, point number one. The root of our sin and cause of our resistance to God is pride. So from the very beginning... um, the things that we've seen, the sins that have taken place, even if you go back as far as Adam and Eve, what was it that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with? You think you've got it made. You think everything's good. But you could be so much more. You could be like God. You could know more things. You could have the same mind as Him. There's, there's a higher level that you can achieve. And they're thinking, that sounds good. I want more. I am not just satisfied with where I am. I deserve to know more. I am more important than what God has given to me. I should go and I should take something else for me to make myself better, to build myself up. And up to this point in Jesus' ministry, his, His main message has been, you think you can get by based on your own actions. You think you can get by by fulfilling the law, by, by obeying these things, and that, that your ability to maintain some level of perfection is what's going to appease God. But what I'm saying is, you need to humble yourself. Realize that the law shows you incapable of fulfilling it perfectly. And understand, we read this back in Matthew chapter 5, when he says, Like, perfection is the standard here. 
I require you to be perfect. You be perfect as your heavenly Father. Like, that's a terrifying, a terrifyingly high bar being set. And what Jesus is saying is the law, all these things that you think are saving you are showing you how incapable you are of saving yourself. So everything that he's facing in, in these cities that he's going to, in Chorazan and in Bethsaida and in Capernaum, he's saying, you're just, you're just kind of rooting yourself down in your pride. You're saying, I don't need to let go of this. I can take care of this on my own. I can protect myself. I'm going to read an example of how pride kind of is at the root of all of our sin. It's Isaiah 14. I'm going to read verses 12 through 15. It says, How you have fallen, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. It takes a lot of pride. It takes a lot of pride to see the things that Jesus had been doing and yet reject the the message that he had been following it up with. It takes a lot to say, I see all these powerful things you're doing. I see all these amazing things that you're accomplishing. But you know what? I still think I'm going to try to get by based on this law thing. I feel way more comfortable just trying to obey these rules, obey these laws, and try to earn the favor of God that way. I feel safer in that. It's the same kind of pride that like a 16-year-old would use when he's on the phone with his mom, and she says... You need to get off the phone or you're going to be in a wreck. And he says, nah, I got it. And then he immediately hangs up, looks down to hang up the phone and then rear ends the car in front of him and totals his mom's van. As an example. I don't know if that's ever happened to any of you. It was a good van, wasn't it? Yeah. But it's that same kind of thing that says, it's when somebody says, I know something better for you. I know a better way. I have a better solution. And you say, nah, I got it. Because once you double down on your pride, what Jesus, what Jesus is trying to say is, you guys are just doubling down on your I can take care of myself mentality and it's going to make it so much worse for you in the long run because your pride is so strong and because you so don't want to let go of control because you so don't want to let me be your salvation. You still want to be your own means of salvation. And so I want us to think through. Think through, maybe there's a particular sin in your life. Maybe there's just a particular attitude that you carry about yourself as you go through your life. As you, as you are resisting God or as you are remaining somewhere in the middle, what you have to realize is, It's pride in you that says, I don't need God to save me. It's pride that says, I can get by on my own. It's pride that says, I'm going to make myself something. 
It's pride that says, I don't need the church. I don't need Jesus to help me get by. So the root of our sin, as we've seen in all of these other instances, the root of our sin. Think back to that. Think back to what it said about about the king of Tyre. Like He had all of this stuff, and then he started to trade, and he started to do all of these things, and he started taking advantage of people. The root is, I've built up this wall. I've built up myself. I am so powerful. And that's when we fall. Second point, the wrath of God is real. And the consequences of sin are eternal. The more I read this passage, the more I felt like we as a church needed to have, and this is probably going to be a really good discussion for you guys to continue to have in your community groups this week because I'm not going to be able to like, we're not going to get to have a lot of back and forth about this, but I think there's a lot of discussion that you guys can have, and I think it'll be really beneficial for us to have real conversations about what the wrath of God is like, how God presents the idea of wrath what it means to be under the judgment of God. Because the wrath of God is real and the consequences of sin, and this is the part that you guys really want to talk about, is eternal. I'm just going to read a couple of verses that talk about the judgment of God real quick. The first one's uh, Isaiah 66, verse 24. It says, And they shall go out and look at the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Mark 9, 47 and 48. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. So he says this word worm, and that's a weird word. Why does he say that? That word is representing the idea of a soul or consciousness kind of the, 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 the part of us that separates us from the rest of creation, this, this ability to know and comprehend who God is and interact with God. And so what, what, what Jesus is saying in Mark 9, what Isaiah is saying uh, in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 66, is that to be under the wrath of God means conscious punishment from God. And he says, where their worm does not die, implying that it does not have an meaning, that it is an eternal thing. There are lots of different ways that people talk about hell, that people interpret what the idea of punishment for sin, hell, actually is. And some would say, I, I, I can't believe in a God who sends somebody to hell consciously for eternity to be tortured. That I'm not okay with. I'm not, I'm not cool with that idea of God. And to that I say, he seems to present himself as a God who if you reject him, you will, you will exist in eternal punishment as a result of your rejection of him. And to that I go back to, we don't get to say who God is. We don't get to pick the parts of God that we like and we follow that version of him. We accept who he is and who he presents himself to be. And, and we see that, that his punishment for us, he's saying, is eternal. It's not this, you're punished for a while and then you're just gone. There's no, there's no end in sight for this. And I'm not saying this just, 
just because I want to scare unbelievers into, you know, praying some prayer superstitiously. So they're like, I don't want that, so I'm going to pray this prayer. Because, because I know a lot of us at some point in our younger lives may or may not have prayed some prayer superstitiously just so we could get a get-out-of-hell-free card or get fire insurance. I, what, are, what are all the churchy ways that I could say this, right? Like, like the temptation has been, oh, I don't want to go to hell because that doesn't sound like fun, so I'll pray that prayer and I'll take care of it. And I'm not trying to preach this really scary version of hell because I want to scare you into believing something. Because I want to scare you into taking some action to make me feel better about where you are in relation to God. I want to present God exactly as he presents himself. We have to understand the consequences of sin because the better we understand the wrath of God, we, as believers more appreciate the idea of salvation from it. Christina, I'm going to skip that verse in Revelation and I'm going to just jump on down. Let's go ahead and jump down back into Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to go ahead and finish up the chapter. Because Jesus has a response to this idea of judgment. Jesus is presenting this idea of, it's going to be worse for you than it was for Sodom, who was completely wiped off the face of the earth because you've rejected me. But then he follows it up with this message of hope. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So our response as believers to the idea of the wrath of God should be worship. And I get this because right after this really heavy, weighty thing that he just said to the people... He follows it up with a prayer to his Father. He says, thank you, God, for it being this way. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Wise and understanding, I kind of read a bit tongue-in-cheek, and more he's saying, for those people who think they have it all understood, those people who really think they've got it, I thank you that you've hidden it from them, those, those proud people who are trying to get by based on their own actions, their own knowledge, their own understanding of what, of what has been given before. And he says, and I thank you that you reveal it to little children. Not, not, not just literal children, but, but people who approach God with this childlike faith, this, I don't have to understand everything. I don't have to be in control of every single thing that I read in here. I don't have to have my brain perfectly wrapped around everything. I just know that you're good, and I love you, and I want to follow you. Those are the people that, God is th- that, that Jesus is thanking God for. Thank you for, 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 for bringing me humble people who aren't trying to elevate themselves above everybody else or, or present themselves as as knowing more than everybody else, and that's what their hope is in. 
And so in a sense, he is worshiping God because God is is consistent when he says, I'm going to pour out my wrath on those who who, who reject me, those those who, who do not humble themselves before me. Because because just as God is pouring out His wrath at the same time, He's saving those people who who have this childlike wonder and faith. He's saving those people and Jesus is thanking God for that. Because we we wouldn't be able to comprehend how amazing salvation is if we weren't able to comprehend how awful the wrath of God would be that we are being saved from. And so, and so Jesus praises God for the fact that He is sovereign over all of this. And it's not just that He praises Him because He's in control. He praises Him because His will is being done in this, right? Look at verse 26. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. So it's not just that God is pouring out His wrath because there are those who haven't, who haven't relied on Him, who haven't humbled themselves and chased after him. It's because his will is being done. Because he's getting what he wants, Jesus worships the Father. He's excited about the idea that God is getting his way. Jesus has moved to a greater love and worship because God is sovereign over everything. He doesn't, it's not this idea of, God's in control, but I want more control. It's, you're in charge, and I love it, and I love you for it, and I love that you're taking care of all of this, and that it's not on me to get myself through this world. Our objective as believers is to be moved by the sovereignty of God to worship, not resistance or questioning. We should approach hard-to-understand truths that are presented in this book with childlike awe and wonder. Think about that. Think about that. When have you seen... What, think about the look that you see on like a kid's face when they like see something... What's something amazing that we, that we take for granted? Christmas morning. Christmas morning. I don't take that for granted. I like Christmas morning. <laughs> But, like, I'm even thinking of something simpler than that. Rainbow. Yeah, like, hey, it's a rainbow. That's amazing. Do you see that? It's got, I know all the colors. I learned all those colors in school. Look, all of those colors are, I see all of those colors just like my teacher said I would see if I ever saw an actual rainbow. And I didn't even have to draw that one. It's just, it's just there in the sky. And we're like, yeah, it's a rainbow. Do you know why that rainbow's there? Well, maybe if we study it a little bit, maybe we can understand how the water vapor in the air and the sunlight penetrating through it, that's when I'll be really amazed. I'll be really amazed when I can understand all of the science behind why that rainbow appeared. We kind of get to this point, the older we get, the more mature we get, that we're like, I'm not just amazed by the fact that there are like an, an infinite number of colors just right there in the sky in a strip. We're not just like, whoa anymore. 
But when Jesus presents this idea of the wrath of God and salvation and all of these things, instead of us saying, well, i got to understand exactly why God does this thing this way or how this piece of salvation works, and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have conversations where we try to better understand these sorts of things, but do you ever just step back and say, God's going to judge the wicked, and he's chosen to save me. Wow. Do you, ever, do you ever find yourself in a place of just awe and wonder at what he has done? Are you able to get back to that, that childlike moment where you're just amazed by the fact that he is who he is and that he loves you? Because when we get back to that part, all the stress of trying to understand everything and figure everything out can just go away. And that's kind of what he says. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. Take this. You're used to having this big heavy piece of wood that ties you down that you use to kind of drag your life through the dirt. Right? Take that off and put mine on. Because mine is light. I don't require all of these actions. I just want your heart. I just, want, I just want you to trust that I've got you. It's so much easier. It's so much, it's so much safer. Stop, stop getting bogged down in this idea that you, are in, that you have to save yourself, that you are in control. And I don't know where you are. I don't know if you have lots of life going on. I don't know if you're trying to trying to earn, earn the attention or the love of somebody in your life, or, or you're trying to appease the church by saying, I'm going to be here this many times, and I'm going to do this many things, and I'm going to make sure that I bring the best sloppy joes on Sunday. Because if I can bring the best sloppy joes, then Jesus will love me. Because obviously Jesus cares more about sloppy joes than anything else. And you laugh. But, but don't we do that sometimes? Don't we say, I have to do this and this and this so that this person will love me? What Jesus is saying is, don't worry about weighing yourself down with all of those kinds of cares. All of those, all of those affections that you're trying to, to receive based on all these things you do. That doesn't matter. Just come to me like a kid and be like, can I just hang out with you? You seem cool. I'd like to spend some more time with you. And he's like, yeah. Come on, I'll take care of this. You know what? All of that salvation stuff that you've been working so hard to earn based on the way that you fulfill the law or based on the way you do this or don't do that, all that, don't worry about that. I'll take care of that. I'll take all of that on myself so that your path can be lighter. So that, so that all you have to do is just let go of your pride, let go of your I can do it myself, I got this mentality. Just let go of all of that, humble yourself and say, Jesus, you got it. And just rely on him to be faithful and rely on him to be our hope and our salvation. And when you think back through what he's saving you from, that judgment, that idea of where you could be headed, were it not for Jesus' intervention in your life. 
Don't sit back and think, I can't believe that he, he treats people that way or that he punishes people that way. Don't be angry about it. Instead, instead be moved to this, this, thank you for what you've done. Thank you that, that you have, you've thought it best to save me from that. And let's, let's worship him because we understand what it is that he has saved us from. And we're so thankful for that. Let's pray.